Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C., Ben Olson. Ben, how's it going? It's going good. Any uh, exciting news from the other side of the country? Uh, no, but I did hear, I was watching an ad for an app to, this morning and I just decided I was done with app ads that use <laughs> zy- <laughs> that use xylophone music. Xylophone music specifically. Wow. Wait, well, do you know what I'm talking about? Like every time you find some little video promoting some little app, it's like really jolly music and everybody's excited to be doing their job so easily now and they can just they can send messages to somebody else and they're all smiling and they get the <laughs> the job done so quickly and it's always the same music it's like a xylophone in the background and it's really cheery but every app uses the same music and it's annoying you saw that ad online or yeah yeah it was just like um it was for like a task manager or something you know you, you click on it it's like see how it works and you click oh, it. oh i see it's all the same sort of music that they use on these like Kickstarter things too. You know, they start showing you the watch and it's like ding, 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 ding. And everybody's really happy and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's enough. We need <laughs> <laughs> some like, I don't know, just no music at all would be better. All but right. Now yeah. I want to make an ad that's like negative, you know, like sign up for this class, this LSAT class. It's really dreary. It's really awful. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so. That's that's what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, marketers, just stop with the xylophone music on the ads. You're pissing Ben off. <laughs> that's awesome. My ass is super sore. Actually, my entire body is super sore because I yesterday was uh, hanging out with a friend and we decided that it would be a good idea to buy a volleyball and go down onto the beach on Venice beach and start just like dorking around (laughs) with the volleyball. Yeah. So we played beach, just, just, just dorking it back and forth with each other, you know, trying to see if we could get like 20 in a row. And uh, we finally did, but (laughs) I woke up this morning and was like racked with pain (laughs) from, from just some very casual uh, beach volleyball. So that gives you a sense of my current level of fitness, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. I just had something similar. I was just doing something different with my workout and I was like, geez, Louise, like this is basic stuff. And two days later, I'm still suffering. So I guess, um, uh, we'll, we'll make it through this episode. huh? I think, I think I'll be all right. I have my cup of coffee and uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like in that type of pain, but, uh, it is, a, it is amazing how just like t- a little tweak doing something a little bit different. But yeah, we were like diving around in the sand and stuff. It was kind of fun. That was cool. Do you have your uh, butter? My butter. Oh, in the put coffee. Butter in coffee. No, 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 no. I don't. I I'm a black coffee guy, but it is butter is a totally acceptable substitute for for cream. If you do, if you want cream in your coffee, and you don't have any handy, <laughs> you can use butter for that same purpose. And I know people think I'm a freak for that, but. It works. Well, yeah, I was going to give you the feedback I've gotten. People come up to me and tell me, they're like, oh, I, I just heard the episode where Nathan puts butter in his coffee and I tried it out and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're encouraging people to try new things. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't expect most people to, um, you know, be able to understand it. It's, uh, it's, 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 I have a sophisticated palate, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's what I've always thought, man. That's 100% uh, not true, by the way. I was at a bar <laughs> the other day and uh, I it was some fancy place that I'd never been to before. And my friend looks at the menu and goes, oh, Prisoner. It's some red blend, I guess. And Prisoner, I, I've never even been to a place that has that by the glass. And I was like, all right, fuck it. I'll get that. And yeah. it was the, it's like the most expensive single, uh, single glass of wine, I think that I've ever bought, which is not, not like ultra, ultra expensive. Cause I'm not an idiot, but it was, um, $25, which is like way more than I want to pay for a glass of wine. But I was like, you know, this is some special thing. I'll give it a shot one time. I'll try it and see what I think. Yeah. And I swear to God, I would, pref- I, th- there's no way I could tell the difference between that and like two buck chuck. I I am officially a cheap wine drinker and I'm proud of it. So I think that was the last time I'm ever going to spend money on wine. Um, for now on, I'm just getting the cheapest one and that's all there is to it. Good to know. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Today on the show, we are not going to talk about soreness and wine and xylophone music for the entire time we are going to talk about the lsat and law school admissions um we have a whole bunch of emails still here ben just a big backlog and we also are going to probably have time to do at least one question of logical reasoning from june 2007 sounds good yeah yeah sounds good to me too i've been looking forward to it you want to talk about this bart ad that you saw yeah, so I was in California visiting family, and I got onto BART to go to the airport, and I just noticed that there was an ad. Um, I mean, I walked by it pretty quickly, but it was basically recruiting people to become attorneys. So that was a little bit surprising to me. It's like basically, hey, uh, become an attorney and help fight for environmental justice. And I didn't read it too carefully, but it definitely had this sense of like, you know, it now is the time to step up and defend the environment that is under attack essentially because of Trump. And so I was like, hey, you know, people are responding to Trump in some way and deciding to go to law. Law is becoming cool again for for a few days, you know? <laughs> yeah. What, was this an ad for like, was this from... From a law school? I'm trying to figure out who's paying. I know for this it was ad. from an. It, it, it seemed like an organization. I want to say something like, well, some, kind of it had like an NGO sort of feel, you know, and they were just encouraging people to go to law school, and maybe they would even help fund it a little bit. I I wasn't totally sure. That just seems. Of course, I'm gonna shit on this whole idea right please go right ahead yeah <laughs> i don't know it just seems so far-fetched <laughs> like you know yeah no actually now that you say that that's kind of what that is the thought i had when i was like walking and again this i was just walking by it in like 15 seconds but i was thinking what so you're gonna go to law school and then you're gonna end up fighting for environmental justice what are the chances of ending up there i mean what <laughs> What's going to happen between now and four years from now when you finally get done with this? Yeah, Trump is hopefully not even going to be president anymore by the time you get out. So what, you're going to start now with studying for the LSAT? (laughs) (laughs) 
then you're going to do your whole application cycle. Then you're going to go three years of law school, study for the bar, pass the bar, and now instantly you're going to be the type of lawyer that actually has an impact on like national, global national politics. Wow. Yeah. That is, yeah. that's amazing. That's like, I have a brain tumor, so I'm going to start studying so I can become a brain surgeon. Yeah, you know, it's bizarre because, uh, no, I mean, that's another good point. What are you going to do when you first come out of law school? Are they hoping to recruit you and then get you up to speed? On... <laughs> like immediately the government is just like calling you, like, we need you. You're the best. We need you on the team right now. we got to fight this, fight these problems. Wow. Well, the weird thing here, too, is that, that those ads cost money, you know? So this organization is somehow thinking that this was a good use of funds this week and this month and now. We need any, somebody in the Bay Area, if you see that ad, please let us know. I'm actually going, uh, I'll be, I'll be uh, in the Bay Area this weekend teaching my class in San Francisco. And uh, so I'll be on BART a little bit and I'll, I'll look for it. I want to see because we got yeah. to get to the bottom of this. Any Bay Area listeners, please, if you see this ad... Tell us who it is that's wasting money on this advertisement on BART. I wonder I wonder now if the more rational interpretation is they're just trying to get attorneys to work for them, who you know, people who are already attorneys. That would make more sense. That does make right? a lot more sense, yeah. The, if if they are actually recruiting for real jobs and but then <laughs> But I I'm serious, it really felt like at least when like I passed by that it was like, yeah, becoming it was like attorneys you know this is the thing now this is good so become an attorney i that's what i felt like but we gotta get it figured out i actually tried to google it after i uh got home because i was like what did that ad actually say uh but i couldn't find it so interesting all right well hopefully we'll have an update on the next show if we can get to the bottom of this and yeah bay area listeners if you if you see that ad and you want to uh snap a picture of it or something and send it to us we'll uh We'll, we'll crowdsource this and get it, get it yeah, figured out. Yeah, so I, I was getting on at the uh, Walnut Creek Art Station. That's where I saw it. Okay, I don't know so East Bay. East Bay, yeah. East Bay listeners, we need somebody to go to the Walnut Creek Art Station and find that ad. <laughs> <laughs> to be totally grandiose and think that we're actually capable of talking our audience into doing something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Should we dive into these emails? Yeah, yeah let's do it. Okay. Good. This one is from, can we say her name? It wasn't on there, but I just looked at the email and she didn't say not to say. So that means we say, right? I think so. Yeah, that's yeah, the rule. That's the Everybody policy. Everybody knows by now. Yeah. <laughs> so this is from Cordelia. It says, hi, Nathan and Ben. I found your podcast helpful and fun when studying for the LSAT last spring, and I enjoyed introducing and cheating the LSAT also. Oh, those are two of my books, which are all available on Amazon. Wait, did you just add that in there? No, she she said she literally said, and I enjoyed introducing and cheating the LSAT also. I'm just kidding. That's yeah. good. Yeah, there's good books. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the great material. But there was a question I didn't find an answer to. What does the improvement curve look like for most people who study for the LSAT? As in, what's the optimal amount of time and material to go through, and when do you hit the point of diminishing or no returns? Of course, it will vary some, but I'd bet there's a neat curve with a peak somewhere. The basic question of when to start preparing comes up a lot, and I'd love to see a data-driven answer in case you are already compiling some data on that for your own purposes and future students or would like to enlist other podcast listeners for a self-reported study, I've included my records. And then she goes into her whole, all of her practice test dates and scores. 
Yeah, she has a lot more faith in us, I think, than than is warranted. Yeah, well, I was hoping that you, because you're like the data-driven guy, so I was hoping that you would have some sort of a data-driven answer. But my answer would always just be, it really depends for everybody. You should start prepping as soon as you can because it takes everybody a different amount of time. And even if we did come up with a curve, right, it would just be an average curve, which doesn't really do a lot when you're an individual who's trying to make their own decision. So I think we are going to agree here, probably start as soon as you have time in your schedule and then how long it's going to take. I don't what I would just sort of speculate three months. Yeah, that's my sense is it feels like people can put in a good amount of effort for two to three months, see decent progress. I think it's reasonable to expect 10 to 12 points in that time frame. Uh, can people do more? Certainly. Uh, but as we always say, plan on taking the LSAT twice. So you shoot for the next test in the next two to three months. You see how far you can get. Maybe you take it and then maybe you decide you can eke out, you know, another five points or something. Yeah, there will be diminishing returns. You're not going to go up as much each time. But that also depends on where you're at. Yeah. You know, so... I think it's tough, but I think it's it's reasonable to say that it's going to probably take the vast majority of people between two and six months, and it's not unreasonable to expect 10 to 15 points in that time frame. If you don't improve by 10 points from your diagnostic, that usually means that you just didn't do the work. You know, if you weren't prepping kind of on an everyday basis, you didn't do any reading, you didn't do enough practice tests, then, you know, you're not going to improve. But if you do work diligently at it, like we're always talking about an hour a day for two or three months, you should probably improve by 10 points or more. And yeah, eventually in month two or three, your scores, your improvement's going to level off, right? Yeah. Scores are going to kind of be bouncing around a new higher level. You'll still have, of course, plus or minus, you know, three or four or five points from test to test. But the average of those practice tests will be like 10 points higher or more from, from where yeah. you started. Yeah. And <clears throat> granted, if you're starting higher, then that's going to be a little more challenging, right? Obviously, if you're in the mid-160s, it's easier to break 170 than someone else. But at the same time, it's harder to go up 10 points. I think if you're lower, if you're in the 140s, it might be easier to pick up more points. But then at some point, right, if you get too low, it's like um, maybe going up is going to be a challenge because you're you're struggling with even more basic stuff yeah. and going to have trouble getting your mind wrapped around the core concepts that you need to do to get into the upper 150s and so on. Yeah. So Cordelia then gives her whole dates and practice test scores uh, and official score. She started on March 5th with a 160, and she ended up on the actual June 6th of last year, LSAT with a 170. So exactly 10 points difference between her first diagnostic and her actual score. Her practice test scores leading up to the June 6th test in the last month or so were bouncing between 166 and 173, and she ended up with that official 170. Yeah. Awesome. That's three months, mm -hmm. 10 points improvement. That's like exactly what we would expect. How did she do it? She says she took one full-time test each weekend and did one section timed almost every weekday. She used a total of 31 past exams, 
So that's 14 full tests and 16 that she, <laughs> she says dismembered, which I like. She dismembered those and uh, did them as timed sections. And then she read uh, two of my books. And she's going to pen. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Okay. So success story. Yeah. Awesome. Anything we want to add to that? 10 points is a good goal to shoot for. I just clarify, as I think we often have, that there's a lot of variation too. So if you only go up six, that might just be because you were on the lower end of your range, right? On test day and not to panic too much about it. That's why you want to plan on taking it twice. Or three times. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Thanks, Cordelia, for listening. Uh, Good luck at Penn this fall. Next one. Dear Ben and Nathan. Uh, my name is Chris, and first off, let me say how much of a fan of the show I am. You guys helped guide me every step of the way from my first diagnostic at 150 to my eventual 171 I got on the December test. Wow. And I cannot thank y'all enough for that. I'll try to keep this as brief as possible. I just had a couple questions. A lot of y'alls in here. Nice. <laughs> Where is this guy from, Chris? Uh, somewhere south, I'm guessing. Uh, first off... I wanted to know if y'all had any tips for improving from a 171 to a approximately 180. Whoa. (laughs) Now, I know what y'all want to say here. Quote, don't do it. You're already in the 98th percentile. It's not worth your time. However, I just started working an LSAT tutoring job for Kaplan. I took it in September and got a 162 and December was a 171. So I have one more try to take it. I'm literally getting paid to study for the test right now, and I'm taking a gap year, so the only opportunity cost to taking this again is the $175 it costs, and I can get over that, so there seems no reason not to try to improve. I have all of Kaplan's resources for free, as well as tutoring others really helps me grasp concepts better because I cannot teach them if I don't have a good handle on them myself. Should I continue to take 45 minutes set- what? That's got to just be a typo. Yeah. 35-minute sections, he means. Should I continue to take 35-minute sections as you recommend? My worry is I'm almost out of prep tests. I have done literally every prep test so far except maybe one or two. Okay. So I I think the most valuable thing for Chris is to do what we always say, but that is to continue to take sections even from tests that he's taken before, maybe start with the ones that he hasn't seen in a long time and then force himself to basically get a hundred percent correct. If you know, maybe that's after the timer's up, but before he grades it, figure out every question that he had any doubt about on his own before he knows what the right answer is. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot here. There's a lot we can kind of unpack here from this first question. I like that plan. Sure. Do 35 minute sections. I do also want to say, like, I don't understand why he's doing this. I, I guess. Sure. I mean, I guess a 175 is better than a 171. See, we don't have his GPA, do we? No, oh, we don't have GPA. Maybe we do down below. Oh, we do later. Uh-oh. 3.09. Yeesh. But improving. Yeah. Could, says he thinks he can get it up to a 3.2. So that's cool. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, so fine. Let's just say it's worth it. He, he enjoys LSAT studying. He's also now working for Kaplan. I think that the Kap- some of the Kaplan techniques and stuff that he's going to have to be teaching his students is going to hurt him. 
I don't think, you know, a lot of that stuff they're going to teach you in Kaplan is going to really be useful. Yeah. But the fact that he's teaching is going to be definitely useful. Yeah, and I'm assuming that most of his teaching is probably going to just be on explaining why things are right or wrong and how he thinks about it. So he can probably ignore their techniques in a lot yeah, of Yeah, just use the test questions. Yeah. Right. So even when you take a crappy LSAT prep class, they do give you lots of real tests. So I would just tell him, like, yeah, ignore all of the lessons that he's going <laughs> to – all the lessons, just ignore all that. <laughs> And instead, just do the questions themselves, the real LSAT questions. Yeah. And when when you're teaching your students, you know, just don't worry about the the dumb Kaplan explanations, and you should use you know, like common sense, app, a good explanations. You know, it's funny. Um, Google uh, has like documented or put online all these books, right? Sometimes you search for terms, and it'll show you it's in some book that they've digitized or whatever, and you can't see the whole book. Have you ever done this? No. Oh, okay. So um, if you search for some phrase and it happens to be in a book, uh, Google has digitized a lot of these books. And so it's searchable and it will take you to that page of that book. And it won't, obviously, for copyright reasons and whoever owns that book wants to sell it to you as opposed to just giving it to you through Google. Google won't show you the whole book, but they'll show you some of those pages. But the point of this discussion is that I was searching for an explanation on a particular question. And I was curious, I think someone was asking for a book that would have good explanations. And I came across Princeton reviews explanations, and I actually found them to be very concise, but also accurate and and good. And I didn't know if, you know, such a big company. You don't know if the person who wrote those explanations is writing the other explanations. So that's right. that's what I told the person. I was like, hey, you know, these actually look pretty good. But I also came across Kaplan's explanations, and they, it was it was very, I mean, it's consistent with <clears throat> with what we've thought about Kaplan. But I was just, it's sort of mortifying to actually see it in print and be like, wow, it really is as bad as I like to joke around that it is, you know, they had yeah. their little catchphrases and they were bolded. So it definitely felt like some sort of like game almost. I'm reading through these explanations. It's like a is wrong because it's quote out of scope and out of scope is bold and slightly bigger text. And oh, it's like, if, God damn it. if you only, if you just recognize that it's out of scope, then you're good, <sighs> you know? And, and some of these things were wrong. Like I was like, well, it actually is relevant. It's just, and it does yeah. slightly strengthen the conclusion. It just doesn't strengthen it nearly as much as this other answer, which is correct, because it uses many instead of most. And yet here they are just like, it's out of scope. I'm like, who sat down and wrote, you know, and wrote this? This is yeah. insane. But they're so obsessed with their little like catchphrases. And they had yeah. some other ones, you know, it was like, I don't know, extreme and extreme is bolded and bigger <laughs> Wow! as if the, just wow. knowing like oh that answer is extreme now i know why it's wrong as opposed to like yeah. focusing on the actual word that makes it wrong or the phrase or the idea you know yeah and understanding what you're looking for <laughs> and understanding what would be what would be right you know and then okay this is specifically wrong because of this out of scope is a funny one because in my experience, when people say out of scope, it's a really good sign that they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Like they just, it, it's, uh, why is this one wrong? And they're like, out of scope. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> it's just, not, you know, it's like, 
oh, okay, you you mean, but what? But what do you mean? What what is out of out of scope? What are you talking about? Yeah, and even if like it... what type of question is this, <laughs> and why is it wrong to be out of? I mean, out of scope would only be that. I guess if we're talking about a must be true question. Yeah, I mean, I could see an answer choice being irrelevant and you saying it's out of scope, but usually they've written these things so that they they still seem somewhat on topic. And so you have to yeah. explain, at the very least, say, well, it's out of scope because it doesn't touch on, you know, this idea and the conclusion. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. just so inadequate. And it was just, it was... I mean, I wasn't mortified, but I was I was like, geez, it really is true. This is just awful. <laughs> yeah. Kaplan is hilarious, man. I I you know, we've talked about this before, but I walked into a testing center in Boston looking for SAT work. This was fifteen years ago. And they said, Oh, we have too many SAT teachers, but if you take a practice LSAT Maybe we could give you LSAT work. Yeah. And so they put me in a room. I did a practice LSAT. I like. I think I timed it myself. <laughs> and they hired me on the spot to teach to, to start teaching LSAT. They put me through a pretty shitty like one week training program, and bang, I was like their new LSAT teacher. Yeah. I never taught a classroom class for them, but they they did have me do some one on one tutoring, which I'm sure they were billing out at, you know, hundreds of dollars and I was getting paid whatever twenty dollars an hour probably. Yeah. And that's the type of shit you're gonna get with Kaplan. Now we're not you know, Chris seems like a very thoughtful guy and because he's listening to the podcast, you know, we know he's a genius. But they don't even, I mean, he got a 171. That's way over the, the hiring requirements mm-hmm. for a Kaplan LSAT teacher. Yeah. And even, you know, look at what Chris is doing. He's he's going to teach a little while for Kaplan. He's got no training. He's got no really sp- particular expertise. He's just a smart guy who, you know, was able to work his way up to a 171. That's awesome. And, you know, probably can get higher. But he's he's going to be teaching LSAT classes for Kaplan where people are paying thousands and thousands of dollars to take the class from him. Yeah. And he, his goal is to make a little bit of cash because it sounds to me like he's going, you know, he's going to law school. Yeah. So he'll be there. It's just a bummer. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The only saving grace for Kaplan is if you happen to get a teacher who's yeah. been doing it for a long time happens to like working there and thus continues to work there even though they probably could yeah. do something else yeah. and yeah i mean you, you can catch the advice a, strictly you Just can catch say, somebody like, who happens to be great at teaching so you know, do happens to enjoy you. it and happens to be great at it i mean i think i was pretty damn good when i was a power score teacher but it was nothing to do with power score because they barely trained me and they just threw me right into that classroom and it turns out i was born to teach the lsat and i made a whole career of it but um, and so, yeah, I think my students who had me there, like, I think they kind of got lucky cause they got a, an actual teacher, but there've got to be a zillion other people who are like, Oh no, I'm just a smart person who's on my way to a lawyering career. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read to you out of this book for a while while you, while you're in this LSAT class, you know, and like, I can probably, I can, you know, I understand I can, I can get, I can find the right <laughs> answers. So that's, yeah. you know, qualifies me to be your teacher now. But boy, that's that's going to be rough when because you've you've seen it, right? I mean, you have your students do some explaining to each other in class. Yeah. 
And you'll have high scoring students, right? You'll have a student who's already scoring 170 and you know, they understand the question. Yep. They got it right. But then when you, if I like just kind of listen in and there's times where the smartest one in the class will be the worst at explaining, Mm -hmm. you know, like they, I can tell they understand it, but they just have no ability to convey that understanding to anyone else. So it's, um, mm-hmm. just, just cause you got a high scorer in front of you. doesn't mean that you've got like an, a teacher in front of you. Yeah. Anyhow, I think Chris will benefit a lot from the, just from the teaching, right? Just from doing dozens and dozens of explanations, mm-hmm. his score is going to be going up. I would, I would think even if he doesn't do really any prep. Yeah. Okay. Next question. What would y'all recommend doing with my gap year? I finished college a year early and now I have a mm-hmm. BA in econ in a small town, as well as working for Kaplan, very part-time, and a small movie theater. Cool. Also part-time. Should I try to intern at a law firm for the experience or try to get a real job with econ, which can help finance my law school education? If you can get a, quote, real job, I would. Um, the only reason to go to a law firm would be to make sure you know what you're getting into. Yeah, a crappy internship at a law firm is not going to be good money, and it's also not going to be really good experience other than the peek behind the curtain just to see whether this is what you really want to do. So, yeah, you're thinking, hey, you've got an economics degree. Maybe you can get an actual business job. Yeah, and plus I think that's better for your resume. I think that coming in... It doesn't matter what you do. You could be a chef. If you're an awesome chef yeah. or at least somewhat going up in the ranks and learning how to be a good culinary arts person, that's something to talk about. Internships at a law firm, just because it's a law firm, does not help yeah, you Yeah, it's all. you and everyone else who has this crappy internship. It does not differentiate you at all. It's not really legal experience. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, right. I would go for the money slash I would go for whatever it is that you're really into. Because mm-hmm. best case, he gets a job, a job job that pays him well and he really loves it. And then he just doesn't go to law school at all. Best, best. That would be the very best case. So. <laughs> and then write us. And tell yeah, us. please tell us if we talk to you out of law school, please let us know because it's like the greatest thing that ever happens to a, to, to me anyway. When, when someone says, oh, I decided <laughs> I took your advice and decided not to go to law school. I'm like, yes, nice. <laughs> no, that's good. So, yeah, make some money, save some money. Uh, boy, really consider not paying for law school. I mean, uh, we'd have to talk to Chris about his plans for what he's going to do with his JD and, and that kind of thing. But. We've t- we've said it a million times. Basically, if you're not going to go into big law, you should not be taking on like big law kind of debt, mm-hmm. right? So, if he's paying out of pocket, which he he might be because of his low grades, although I don't know, with a 175 and a 3.2 GPA, he should be able to get some pretty significant money at a lower ranked school. Yeah, I mean, it looks like he wants to do, or he's considering T14 like everyone else, but just based on his lower questions here, but yeah, like, okay, great. You get into a T14 maybe with those numbers, but can you get into a top 20, top 30 school and get a full ride? I don't think that's unreasonable no. at all with those numbers. No. He says, assuming with a 170, uh, with a 171, assuming I don't score higher, is the T14 a pipe dream for me? I know my GPA 3.09 is low, 
but I really plan to show law schools I've changed by getting a 3.7 last semester, and then hopefully around that, this semester, oh, so he had a 3.7 last semester, and he's hoping for a mm-hmm. higher than that this semester to show I have what it takes. I'm hoping to use my last year in college as well as relevant work experience to show I can succeed in law school. Do you think I have a shot at the T14? You know, we don't answer these questions anymore because you need to go on the, like, just very many law school predictors that are out there, right? Google LSAT GPA calculator, and that's going to give you a very good idea of what schools you're likely to get into. I mean, I guess his specific question here is, hey, because it's improving. But, you know, we've said this a million times. They're only looking at that if they already like your numbers as they are, right? Yep. I mean, your GPA is what your GPA is. And that law school predictor that you're going to find, Google LSAT GPA calculator, put your numbers in, and it's going to tell you what your chances are roughly. And we can't tell you how much the, the... improving trend is likely to really help you. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the next question, follow up, if I can improve to maybe a 175, will that help me much? Well, yeah, I mean, again, you can play with those numbers in the LSAT GPA calculator. Yep. I know you will probably suggest going to a lower ranked school where I can get a scholarship, but if someone like Duke accepted me, I'd pay sticker price in a heartbeat. Okay, fine. That's a decision you can make. Yeah, if you, you know, if you have good reasons for doing that, then sure, that would make sense. But if you just like want the prestige of, oh, I'm a Duke kind of a guy, uh, that's a bad reason to pay full price to go to Duke. Yeah. Uh, if you're doing that because you know that Duke is going to get you a big law job where you're going to be able to pay back the crazy Duke tuition, then that's fine. But if you're just doing it because you like the sound of Duke on your resume, that's a, that's really not a smart decision. Lastly, I wanted to say thanks again for doing the podcast. I would be nowhere near as as successful if I did not happen to stumble upon you guys. The Thinking LSAT podcast is going to be the first thing I have written down on the board when I start my first class this Sunday. (laughs) That's awesome. So great. So Chris is in the Kaplan classroom promoting the Thinking LSAT podcast where we relentlessly just shit on Kaplan over and over. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, cool. Thanks, Chris. Uh, enjoy your, uh, enjoy your teaching. I hope you love it as much as I do. It's like the most satisfying career. It's awesome. So maybe Chris will become a full-time teacher, fall in love with it. Yeah. Excellent. You want to take the reins on this next one? Sure. So hi, Ben and Nate, former strategy prep student here. I've been a DC resident since 2007 with roots in the Philly suburbs with Ben's help on the LSAT and great undergrad GPA. I'm facing an enviable decision. I'm currently looking at four full ride offers, American Catholic Temple and Villanova, as well as some money from GW, 16K a year. I've also been accepted at Penn, which I never anticipated happening. LSAT was 163, which is decent, but not amazing. I'm waiting on decisions from Mason and Georgetown but I'm torn between the stark contrast of free tuition versus probable full price and the full ride offers want answers by early or mid-April. Yeah, so American Catholic uh, Temple and Villanova are all in the like 80s to 100s, something like that. Okay. And it's full ride. GW is like 24. 
Penn is what, seven? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, what do you think so far? I think congratulations. That's awesome. Um, my default recommendation is do not pay for law school unless you have very good reasons to pay. Yeah. And I haven't heard anything here. Uh, the, I guess there's more later on about what uh, he, she wants to do. She. she. Yeah. So maybe we should get into some of that. Sure. So background. I graduated from American with my bachelor's in 2011, poli-sci 3.92. And I have been working in the legal consulting world, focusing on the Department of Veteran Affairs since 2012. I will be attending law school full time. My parents will not be assisting me. Uh, But I won't probably be able to get financial aid because I'm still... I guess, associated with them in some way. So Penn and Georgetown require, oh, I see, because Penn and Georgetown require parental information regardless of independence tax status. Yeah, okay, but so. that's not going to stop you from borrowing. You're not, there's, you're not getting need-based help anyway. That's not what happens in law school, right? I mean, you, I guess you get better like lending terms. They're going to loan you all the money in the world. So I don't think any of that really matters. Okay. Yeah, it's just whether or not you get like subsidized. Yeah, you loans get. Or yeah, because if they'll they'll make her like get those plus loans. Yeah. Which are like just much higher interest rates, but whatever. Okay. Yeah. So I've worked hard since 2011, moonlighting in addition to my nine to five job to pay off undergrad loans and build my savings. Due to my risk aversion, I always saw myself as attending law school as at little or to no tuition cost. Great. I also always envisioned myself staying in D.C. And apart from Penn, which was a reach application, I applied to the Philly area schools as more of a safety net in case I received no scholarship offers from D.C. and needed to move home for school. Long term, I have no particular interest in big law or that huge starting salary. And I want to work as a lawyer for the federal government in admin or regulatory law. And that's another reason I want to stay in D.C. and minimize the cost. Minimizing the cost was always the plan. Okay, now that I'm accepted to Penn, however, I'm having a tough time making this decision. Am I throwing away the opportunity of a lifetime or will I continue... Or will a continued hustle at a second or third tier school still make me competitive for a job? On the full tuition offers, do you think being in D.C. with access to the D.C. network and building the one that I have outweighs the higher ranking of the Philly schools? Okay. So just a quick rundown. Penn is ranked 7th. Oh, she says this here. She's got no aid. GW is 25, 16000 a year. Temple is 50, full scholarship, easy renewal. Villanova, 74, same thing. AU, 78, Catholic, 103. All seems like pretty easy ways to renew those scholarships. Yeah, I don't know. Penn is a good school. Ranked 7. Seems like it would open opportunities to the other schools would not in a time when law jobs are not uh, very accessible. But at the same time, (laughs) full tuition is really hard to turned down i'm torn the bird in the hand you know if she wants to stay in dc anyway she already has a network in dc yeah i so g so in dc there's she's still waiting on georgetown and mason and uh both of those schools are pretty good 
I'm surprised Mason's 45. He used to be in the 30s. But those are pretty good schools. Hopefully she can follow up with them and get some word back from them on what they want to do if they want to give her money. They probably don't, though, if they haven't gotten back to her. Where is Temple? That must be in the uh, Philly area, right? Yeah, I think that's in Philadelphia. You know, I just have... I have a negative impression of Catholics, so I would, if I were to stay in D.C., the problem with GW is 16,000 years is not very much. I think the tuition is like, I don't know what it is, but it's high. Okay. So that's not going to help very much. I'd be debating between AU and Penn. I wouldn't worry about the $16,000 at GW. I don't think it's worth the benefit, but Penn is high enough up there that I think it would open opportunities that you wouldn't have with other schools. So I would consider it. Yeah. Wait, wait to hear from Georgetown and Mason renegotiate all these offers. If you can, I like the American offer as well. Were we talking about it recently that a ton of people end up transferring from American to like GW or even to Georgetown, right? George wasn't Georgetown taking a ton of transfers at one point. Yeah, I feel like that's right. I could be making that up. No, no, let's just stick with it, though. It's good. <laughs> it's encouraging. No, I think you're right. Uh, that's the other thing to keep in mind. What was her GPA again? Oh, she had a really good GPA. Yeah. She had 3.92, which means she's going to do well, probably, wherever she goes. Which also means I think she could do well at Penn. I mean, I'd be worried about going to Penn if you don't feel like you can cut it in that academic environment. But she did well. Yeah. At American, so I don't see why she can't necessarily do well at Penn. Yeah. The fact that she says, though, that she does not want to work in big law. I guess the question is exactly what kind of government lawyer do you want to be? And, you know, does she know those government lawyers? And what do they say? Like, how did they get their job? Who Who is the lawyer whose career you're trying to replicate? What is it that you want to do with your life? Do you know those people? If not, you need to meet those people. And you need to talk to them and you need to figure out a reasonable plan for how to get there. If they say to you like, oh, you're not getting my job via American University, then you need to maybe not go to American University, even though it's free. You know, if that's your dream job and you just can't get it without going to Penn, then I would say go to Penn. But if if you talk to them and they're like, oh, yeah, no, these local schools are great. Yeah, sure. You can totally go into these kinds of government jobs via American, then it's a complete no-brainer to just go to American for $0 with a really easy scholarship renewal. And it's where you want to stay. You can minimize costs, right? It sounds like she's already got a place to stay, a place to live in D.C. You know, because Penn, she's going to not only be paying full tuition, but she's also going to be paying living expenses, it sounds like. Yeah, that's a, those are really good questions. Because maybe these government jobs are competitive enough. I mean, there's a whole range of different types of government jobs, right? And uh, some are much more competitive than others. And maybe they only look at schools that are in the top 30 anyway. Or maybe they don't care at all, like you're saying. If they don't care at all, then AU makes a lot of sense. But if they do care, then going to Penn and being not only in the top 30, but in the top 10 could make it a lot easier to get into the, some yeah. of those positions, even if you end up having debt. And I imagine, I don't know for sure, but I would wonder if, if uh, government jobs have some sort of like loan forgiveness too over time, you know, depending on the agency and so forth. But the, the, the reason I'm still like kind of open to and leaning toward Penn is that 
I just wonder how much MJ knows exactly what she wants to do. I mean, she says she does, and she clearly seems to have some idea of what she wants to get into, and she's been working in the federal government, so those are all good things. Uh, She knows more than most people do. At the same time, sometimes I feel like people get into law school, and you take different classes, and you say, you know what? This is actually what I'm interested in doing. I think a lot can happen in three years, and I think leaving Penn, you can look around the country and go to a lot of different places uh and you can't do that with these much more local schools right georgetown yeah maybe gw maybe but not not these other schools yeah it's just the double-edged sword though yeah Penn opens all these doors but then also now you have two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of debt Mm -hmm. and so it opens doors to like that you might not want to walk through. It might open doors that you're going to be forced to walk through, right? And yeah. next thing you know, she's, oh, well, I have all this debt, so I better take this big law firm job. And she ends up working on the exact opposite team. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> she's like wanting to, it sounds like she's wanting to save the world here, being like a government regulatory lawyer. Mm-hmm. I'm just imagining her wanting to like protect the environment or something. Yeah. And then she walks out of Penn with $300,000 worth of debt. And she's like, I have to pay this back somehow. And next thing you know, she's working for Exxon on the exact opposite side of the case she wanted to work on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Which is just not why people go to law school. You know, they don't, that's not what they're planning. People, sometimes people just go to law school and turn into complete dicks. And so that's, that's what I would be worried about with all that debt. Yeah, no, that's true. Although also at Penn, you know, you could, you actually have the opportunity if she does well to look at clerkships and things like that. I, sure. I yeah, it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, this is one that we're never going to be able to solve. And we've been talking about it since the beginning of the podcast, right? I mean, with my students, I've been teaching LSAT for 10 years now. And with my students, it's always been like, I have students every year who have to make the decision between, okay, do I go to Berkeley and pay full price or do I go to, you know, university of San Francisco on a full ride? Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. It really depends. There's, that is not a cut and dried thing. If you don't see yourself making crazy six figures right out of law school, then I don't see how taking six figures worth, worth of debt makes any sense. Yeah. Hey, what do you think about this idea? It probably it might be too late, but what if what if she took the LSAT in June, knocked up her score a few points, that gave her another argument to Penn to say, yeah. hey, we'll give you some money. Well, she could also wait another year. I mean, these are good offers, right? But yeah. if yeah, because one sixty three, she's she's calling that decent but not amazing. I mean, she was your student. Can she score higher than one sixty three? I think so. Yeah, I mean. She works hard, so yeah. I think she can do well. Then, yeah, retake the LSAT in June and potentially, if if necessary, wait another cycle. But yeah, with a if she if she goes from 163 to 166 or something, 167, that's only a few points. But mm-hmm. now George Washington might find a full ride scholarship for her. Yeah, I'm trying to think where she was scoring before, and I think she was actually scoring higher than that for sure. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, then, I if mean, not a lot higher. So if that's the case, then a retake makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Sorry, MJ, you have to remind me, but I think you're you were doing a lot higher than that. So 
Uh, hmm. Yeah, that's something else to consider. Yeah. All right. Any more on that? No, that's it. So this next one, we got an update from a listener who wanted to keep uh, his name redacted, but okay. he scored, basically, he took the test three times, averaging uh, a 163 as well. Uh, also a similar GPA, 3.8. And he writes, I thought you might be interested in how admissions was going for me. I applied to too many reach schools thinking my story would count for more than it did, so I have received a number of rejection letters. I don't think that matters at all. I don't no, think you applied to too many. Like, a rejection letter is the exact same as complete silence because you didn't apply. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it cost you a little bit of money. It cost you a little bit of time. But yeah. so what? I, that's like how you how you do anything you know like uh oh you want to be a writer you want to be a you want to be a television writer okay good like start stacking up the rejection letters that's what you're gonna have to do you're gonna have to write something on spec and send it out and get it rejected by a hundred people you know you get a hundred no's and then that's on the way to getting a yes so that that's that's fine applying to a bunch of reach schools i mean you got to be somewhat realistic, I suppose. Unless you have some crazy, crazy story, your low 160s and your 3.8 is just like not getting you into Stanford. Mm-hmm. You can look at Stanford's ranges and you can just see that they do not admit people that have that low of an LSAT score. Yeah. So it, it's fine. I mean, it, yeah, you could still apply, but <laughs> there's a point where it becomes fantasy instead of like you have some sort of credible chance. Yeah. Uh, so he goes on, however, I got a little over a half scholarship offer, 14000 per year from Alabama last fall, and then after my grades for that semester came in, they raised it to 20 of the 23, so that's pretty good, 20 of 23. Um, I had requested a raise upon receiving the first offer of 14000 explaining that it was my top pick, but I might have to turn it down solely on the issue of economy. To which they replied that a GPA increase would give them grounds to increase it. Nice. They did. So that's great. I then got an offer this month from Emory of 25000 per year. Uh, okay, that's a bigger number, but we don't know what Emory costs. And yeah. after I notified Alabama, they raised their offer to a full ride. Nice. I like this. He's, he's uh, good. playing the game here. Right? <laughs> yeah. I wrote a beautiful negotiation email to Emory, but they didn't budge. Okay. <laughs> Nice. Apparently, they don't have a scholarship committee like Alabama, but instead their dean of admissions handles all the negotiations. Huh. Okay. Okay. So I'll be attending Alabama in the fall, and I wanted to say thanks for all the guidance with with the LSAT and admissions. I might have accepted the 14K per year if I hadn't heard your and Nathan's advice on various podcasts. Sweet. That is awesome. Yeah, that's money right there. Yes, that so is. We only expect half of that, right? Yeah, right. We just get some cut, just a taste. Yeah, so what is that? So 23000 it says, yeah, so 9000 a year, so $27,000 uh, just for asking for it. 27000 plus whatever interest it would have taken to pay that off. Yeah, right, over however many years. So, yeah, so we could be talking about $50,000. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Hey, everybody, listeners, uh, scholarships are negotiable and the D- the admissions folks hate us. They have to hate us because, <laughs> you know, they've got to be getting all these requests for negotiation. But, um, yeah, you, there is no reason not to ask. 
the worst they can ever say is no. They probably will tell <laughs> no, you no and at you're first. Rejected. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen. They don't ever say no and we're withdrawing our offer of admission. That doesn't ever happen. Yeah. I have heard of law schools saying, oh, we don't negotiate scholarships. But, you know, all that is is they're just telling you no. That's yeah. fine. But you have to make them tell you no. I, you know, if they said we don't negotiate scholarships, I would still ask. Oh, of course. That's just uh, to make you feel good about their no, I think. Yeah, and them saying we don't negotiate scholarships, that doesn't mean they don't negotiate scholarships. That that could very well just be their first position that they take in the bar. You know, that's like starting off with, okay, here's the rock bottom. This is the lowest I can possibly go. Yeah. You know, just because yeah. you say that doesn't mean that's true. No, it's true. You come back to him, you say, hey, look, here's the reality. I understand you know, you don't negotiate, but... But let's negotiate. <laughs> I can't come to your school at this freaking price. Yeah, and then so, they say, oh, well, yeah, we don't negotiate, but there is this other scholarship over here that we could consider you for. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we're good. We're not negotiating now, but... You did go find me more scholarship money. We're just looking at what we might have missed, what we forgot about. Yeah. yeah. That's good. It's all negotiations. It's all bullshit. And yeah, you should definitely ask for more money. And we love getting emails like this. This is this is awesome. Yeah. You could, uh, you know, you could give one more shot at Emory there if you, if you really wanted to go to Emory. Yeah. Because now you're not going, right? Well, this dean of admissions who's handling all the negotiations... If you call this dean and say, hey, you know, Emory really was my number one choice, but I've got this full ride at Alabama and I just can't. So respectfully, I am withdrawing my uh, candidacy, uh, my application. I'm withdrawing my application to Emory. But I just wanted to thank you, dean of admissions, for your time. You know, the, that might be the end of it. Yeah. But I've, I've had this happened at UCLA, by the way. I, I had this exact thing happen with a student of mine that she withdrew her application to UCLA because she had a full ride from Irvine and she was talking to the Dean of admissions and okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. And then 15 minutes later, her phone rang and it was that same Dean of admissions who, Oh, we, we, we found a, we found a full scholarship for you. <laughs> that was after with you know after saying on the phone i am with i'm withdrawing my application i think the call there is kind of crucial i think if you do it via email it's a little it's more it maybe seems more final don't you think could be yeah you could also if you have a nice little conversation with them you know if you sound really like adult and thoughtful as you do this whole thing yeah don't 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 do it uh you know like you're haughty or something or what am i trying to say here arrogant you know yeah ah. Oh, I've got, I've decided to go somewhere else. You little yeah. No, you you want to say you want to be doing it in like a very humble kind of you know. Thank you so much for for the offer, and I really appreciate that you know you made this offer of twenty five thousand dollars to me. And um, boy, it was a tough decision, but I just ultimately I I have to because of my family or whatever some stupid reasons, I I have to minimize my debt, and so I'm I'm going to withdraw my application to Emory. But I just again I wanted to thank you. Yeah, and that yeah that very likely could be the end of it, and that's it. But you'll have had a nice conversation, and that dean could hang up the phone, and they could just immediately be thinking like, "Damn, boy, we should have boy, I hate to lose that one." Mm -hmm. You know, 
give them the impression that you're going to be a great alum someday and, yeah. and they get off the phone and then who knows what they might be able to do for you potentially. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's certainly no guarantee, but I, I have had people get money after they have, after we thought it was final, 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 I've had people get more money. So hmm. the negotiation never stops. Well, and then remember we had Anne talking about how people were still negotiating even after the semester started. No way. Yeah, yeah. This was this was a couple of years ago. Anne told a story in my class in San Francisco about somebody who started at school X, like went to a day of school at school X, and then school Y came in with a better offer. Oh, interesting. And actually, okay. actually, like, got on a plane or something. <laughs> like, see you later, school X, and walked away from a semester of tuition. Hmm. But the other school and the other offer was better and just said, all right, I'm out. So yeah, and went and did day one at, you know, some other school. So huh. if if you are willing to keep playing the game and, you know, to, to keep negotiating, I would think all of these offers can get better and better. Yeah, the, these admission officers are going to be really frustrated now. They're like, they just don't stop asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's negotiating, you know. Yep. And our listeners are are like at such a disadvantage when they're negotiating against these people because these people are professional negotiators. Mm-hmm. That's all they do, you know. Whoever this is at at Emory the, with the dean of admissions, uh, uh, we think, uh, according to our one report here that we have from a listener. You know, this dean of admissions is like negotiating with all however many hundred students every single year. So mm-hmm. they're a pro. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I feel pretty good about our role helping the uh, common man here, giving them some advice. Yeah. And that's that. We don't have a name there. Redacted. Yep. Okay. Mr. Negotiator. Okay. Closer. Yeah. So that's it for the emails. We finally cleared out the backlog. Yeah. You want to uh, dive into a logical reasoning question? Sure. This is the June 2007 LSAT, by the way, which is freely available through the Google machines. We are on section three, and I believe we are on question 20. Okay. This is number 20. I would recommend downloading, if you're listening somewhere where you can, if if you're at your desk or if you're somewhere where you can pause, it would be good to to download this test and and try to do number 20 on your own, commit to an answer, and then come back and listen to the explanation. You want to read the argument? Yeah. It says, We should accept the proposal to demolish the old train station because the local historical society, which vehemently opposes this, is dominated by people who have no commitment to long-term economic well-being. Whoa, let's just stop right there. Because that's one sentence, but it's got clearly a conclusion and a reason for that conclusion. Did you say vehemently? Yeah. You want to try it again? Vehemently. Sorry, yeah, vehemently. (laughs) There we go. Uh, Yeah, okay, so this is, what do we have? We have a premise there and a conclusion in in one sentence. And I know that because the word because... Because is an indicator of here comes my reason, and it also indicates that the thing that was said before the because is probably the conclusion. Yep. I also, I knew immediately that the conclusion was that first line uh, because of the we should accept the proposal. 
anytime we ha- should is a is a pretty not always, but it it indicates the conclusion very frequently. Mm-hmm. So we should accept the proposal. Well, why? Why should we accept this proposal? Yeah. And then the because is a pretty bad reason. It says that the local historical society, which opposes demolishing the old train station, because they're dominated by people who have no commitment to long-term economic well-being. So it, that's a very stupid reason to, to demolish the old train station. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, why should we demolish it? Well, because these guys oppose demolishing it. Mm-hmm. And they're jerks. So because they oppose demolishing it and they're jerks, therefore we should demolish it. Yeah. That's a dumb argument. That That's no reason to demolish the old train station. Yep. You know, how much is it going to cost to demolish the old train station? How much environmental damage is it going to cause when we demolish the old train station? What are we going to put there in its, in its place? What are you talking about? What? I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Like even if, even if their rationale for opposing the demolition of the old train station is bad, that doesn't mean, as you're saying, that there's not some other reason why we should oppose demolishing the old train station. Yeah. Uh, just because someone makes a bad argument for something doesn't mean that there isn't another argument that is a good argument for doing that thing or not doing that thing. Yeah, right. I mean, what about... Um kids like old train stations sure you know and that has nothing to do with the historical society or whatever that's just like hey my kid likes trains my kid doesn't want to demolish the old train station so yeah there there could be a million other reasons not to demolish the old train station what about tourism in our town because people come to visit our old train station from around the world and now you're going to demolish it on the grounds that the local historical society is a bunch of jerks. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. So that already, this is a terrible argument specifically, yeah. by the way, it doesn't say they're jerks. It says that it's dominated by people who have no commitment to long-term economic well-being. Yeah. Fine. Which itself has problems. Cause even if you have no commitment to long-term economic well-being, the decisions you make, may end up having long-term economic a positive yeah long-term economic positive yeah. consequences yeah also what about short-term economic well-being mm-hmm. i mean maybe short-term economic well-being is more important to me than long-term economic well-being yep uh, we're not going to live together live forever we already talked about this ben we're not <laughs> going we to live together <laughs> we're not going to live together <laughs> definitely not and we're not going to live forever and maybe I don't have kids and I don't give a shit about what happens in the long term. Mm-hmm. Maybe I only care because that's totally fine. Like that's an acceptable position to take is that, hey, short term is more important than long term. Yep. I mean, we don't know. Okay. So this argument has all sorts of problems. Yeah. It goes on. Preserving old buildings creates an impediment to new development, which is critical to economic health. Okay. It's, it's on the same track. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit better of a premise because it's not so much of like a source argument. Yeah, this is actually a factual claim that if we preserve buildings, old buildings, we're going to hinder economic growth, basically. 
yeah, it's an impediment to new development and new development is critical to economic health. So it's a bad idea to preserve old buildings. Yep. Therefore, we should accept the proposal to demolish the train station. Yeah. That's a lot better of a premise. It is. Because it actually deals with facts directly. I mean, you could still say, who cares about economic health? And uh, does that really matter? But it's better. Okay, cool. Yeah, and, and another another objection, too, would be like, hey, so what if, sure, preserving old buildings, that is an impediment to new development, but right next to the old train station, there might already be like 10 empty lots, mm-hmm. you know, and if there's 10 empty lots right next to the old train station already, then I get it. New development is necessary, but there's plenty of room for new development. Even though there is an impediment to new development, which is this old train station, there could still be plenty of opportunity for new development. We, we just don't know. Yeah. All right. Cool. So then the question goes on to ask, the flawed reasoning exhibited by the argument above is most similar to that exhibited by which one of the following arguments? I would call this a parallel flaw question, in which case we are just looking for another argument that does the same thing. Yeah. And so I would expect it to basically have two premises and one conclusion. Uh, those two premises in that one conclusion don't necessarily have to be in the same order that they were presented in this original argument. In the original argument, it was conclusion, premise, based on what those people think or what they're committed to or not committed to, and then a premise about the actual buildings and what happens when you demolish them. Those can come in any order, but when we read these answer choices, I would expect to see some sort of premise that talks about doing the opposite of some group of people because they're lame Mm -hmm. and then providing some factual premise that actually seems somewhat decent in supporting the conclusion that should, that will probably say should or some word that means should. Yeah. I think that's important. The conclusion does need to have, because, because this argument has a, has like a prescription in it. mm -hmm. It it has a recommendation. We, We have to do this. So mm-hmm. I think the I think the argument or the the correct answer that we pick here has to have that same thing in it. Uh, yeah, telling somebody what to do. So if I were to so in my mind I have sort of a generalized restatement of this argument. In other words, I'm moving away from the content, but I'm thinking to myself, okay, I expect something to fit this mold. We should do X because some other group opposes X, and they're for some lame reason, right? Mm-hmm. And then some other premise reinforcing the idea that we should do X. That's what I would be looking for. Which is also, and maybe that premise would be like, because not doing X has some bad consequence. Yeah. So yes. yeah. So again, it's two reasons why we should do X. One is these jerks over here, they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's a really bad reason, right? Yep. <laughs> And then the other reason is also if we don't do X, we're going to get fat or something like that. Just like some bad shit. So there is some bad consequence of not doing X. Yeah. And I'm just going to dig a little bit more into the details here. I wouldn't be surprised if in that second premise or that, that more legitimate premise that we were talking about, they might have something that says, if you do X, you're going to have some negative consequence, like you said, 
which is necessary for something else, some other good thing. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah, because that last premise, does, you could have said that last premise is actually two, right? Sure. And it's got that word critical in there, which is like necessary, and, and they like that sort of thing. So, yeah. okay, cool. So let's go through these. So answer choice A says, our country should attempt to safeguard works of art that it deems to possess national cultural significance. Okay, so far so good. We should do this. These works might not be recognized as such by all taxpayers or even all critics. Okay, well, that's a little strange. It's like a concession. I don't think it's going to make this answer wrong necessarily, but we didn't see a, con a concession in the original argument, right? Yeah, and I just... I, I go by feel a lot on these matching questions, right? Matching parallel reasoning and parallel flaw or matching mm -hmm. pattern of reasoning and matching flaw. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely go by like a sense of feel and mm -hmm. our abstraction was we need a prescription and then we need two reasons why. Yep. And those two reasons were one, because there's a group that doesn't want to do it and they're jerks. So therefore we should. And then the other one was an actual reason. And I'm just thinking, what is this middle premise here in A? That's not, that's not either one of those reasons. Yeah. So th I think that this answer is going to be wrong. Yeah, me too. But I, I guess what I'm thinking in my mind is that sometimes the correct answer will add additional fluff. Yeah, sure. That's not central to the reasoning, but ultimately the, the, the central premises or whatever were still included and thus it is the best or most parallel yeah. argument. So I already have a chip on my shoulder, but just to put the nail in the coffin, I'm going to go a little bit further. Yep. And already I'm nervous because there's only one more sentence and we need two premises. Right. We're running out of room here. We, we need two premises, but we, we don't, you know. So far, we don't even have one. Right. We just have a concession. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Also, nevertheless, our country ought, ought? Should. Yeah, well, should, but that, I mean, we only had the should in the original, in the conclusion. Yeah, now we have two shoulds. Yeah. Our country ought to expend whatever money is needed to procure all such works as they become available. There's nothing about another group. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why they put in the taxpayers, but that was actually a concession. This is out. Okay, good. Cool. B, documents of importance to local heritage should be properly preserved and archived for the sake of future generations. And now I would be looking... Why? And I'm thinking, okay, in order to make this one right, mm -hmm. it needs to say, well, because these guys don't want to do it and they're jerks. Yeah. Furthermore, here's a reason why. Yep. Okay. And we, we only have one sentence left. Right. So, and it's an if-then sentence. So this is already bad. But it yeah. says for, which is a premise indicator. Because, yeah. Mm-hmm. If even one of these documents is damaged or lost, the integrity of the historical record as a whole will be damaged. We never talked about other people. This is gone. Yeah. C, you should have your haircut no more than once a month. Okay, thank you. That's our conclusion. Yep. After all, premise indicator. Beauticians suggest that their customers have their haircut twice a month. Okay, so that's another group is saying the opposite or saying something, yep. something a little bit different. And they do this as a way of generating more business for themselves. Okay, that's kind of like... They have no commitment to long-term economic well-being, 
right? Like they're, they have this, like yeah. their motives are a little bit off. They're jerks. <laughs> it's the best answer so far because... It's the best answer so far, but it doesn't have the second premise. Right. But I don't think it has to necessarily, okay? Because what we're doing here is we're looking to match... More than anything else, we need to match the flaw. And I think sure. the, mm-hmm. the big flaw of the given argument was we have to do this because these people don't... Because these people want the opposite and they're jerks. Mm-hmm. That's why we have to do this. And that's a flaw. That's just a, like a big flaw. Sure. Yeah. And C is matching that big flaw now. Right? I agree. Okay. I agree. So It's not it's not perfect though. No. And this is actually pretty common. Doesn't mean it's wrong, but it, it definitely means we should keep going just to make sure there isn't something that is more complete and maybe has that second. I mean, A and B are not even close. And C nope. is right now a, a contender. A contender. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Cool. D, the committee should endorse the plan to postpone the postpone construction of the new expressway. Okay, so far so good. And, other, and now that's be, be careful there, right? Because endorse the plan to postpone construction mm. means don't construct, basically. I'm just saying if you, if you read that too fast, you would think it said the committee should like construct the new expressway. Oh, okay. I, I, do you think that this is a problem, though, in terms of no, the original no. conclusion? No, I'm just, I'm just noticing there that I feel like that could be easily misread. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I so want to make sure everybody endorse, understands that endorse the plan to do what? Oh, to not construct the new expressway. Yeah. or to, to put it off. To wait, yeah. Yep, okay. But we still get the we should do something yeah. yep. X, right? Okay, yep. cool. Many residents of the neighborhoods that would be affected are fervently opposed to that construction. Wait, hold on. So they are also in favor of postponing. We would think, yeah. So they don't they don't want to do it. So they postponing seems like a good thing for them. Hmm. So that's a little weird because that's consistent with the right. conclusion. Okay. Well, let's keep going. And the committee is obligated to avoid alienating those residents. Okay, so this kind of makes sense. This argument doesn't have the same problem as before. No, that that argument I, doesn't even seem flawed to me. I was looking for, hey, we should do X because these guys don't want X and they're jerks. Yep. And C had that, and D does not have that. Yep. So it can't be D. All right, last option E. One should not borrow even small amounts of money unless it is absolutely necessary. This is a little strange because it's like a conditional kind of prescription, right? right. So I feel like that's already a little different. But anyway, it's should not do X, okay. Once one borrows a few dollars, the interest starts to accumulate. Beware of law school. Yeah. The longer one takes to repay, the more one ends up owning. This is, I mean, we don't even need to finish. We're not even talking about what other people think, their position, yeah. and how it's different from borrowing or not borrowing. This is crazy. Yeah. It's got to be C. It's not complete, but it's the most parallel by far. Yeah. The question is asking you to match the flaw. The big flaw in the argument was because these guys are jerks, we should do the opposite of what they, what they recommend. Mm-hmm. And C is the only one that has that. These, yeah. you know, these beauticians, ah, they're just doing it to try to make more money. So we should do the opposite. Yep. Well, wait a minute. There, there might be other reasons why we should have haircut more than once a month. Mm-hmm. And so that's the big flaw. I mean, this question, as it turns out, when you look back at the given argument, 
the final sentence of it was really, that's what the fluff actually, or that's, that's the part that's not actually related to the correct answer. Right. Well, yeah, but it, it, it helps fix the argument a little bit. And so if you're going to say that the argument is, is flawed, I, I mean, I agree with you. I guess I just, I don't necessarily have a problem with it being in the correct answer. No, my mm-hmm. point is when I look back at this given argument, when we read the argument, we were really objecting to that first reason they gave, which is, hey, the local historical society sure, opposes sure, it. Sure. And we were like, well, wait a minute. That's not a good reason to do it. So what you're saying is this is that's essential to the correct answer. Yeah, but the be- second part is not as essential. Well, because the second part was not really part of the – that wasn't a flaw. The second part is not a flaw. Um, it's a reason. I mean, it's still it's 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 still flawed, right? It's just not as nearly as flawed. I, I don't because... think I would call it a flaw. I think I would call it in an incomplete argument. It says preserving old buildings creates an impediment to new development. New development is critical to economic health, so we should accept the proposal to demolish the old train station. And that's not a complete argument. It's not perfect, but I wouldn't call it flawed either. I would just say, okay, you gave me a reason. So therefore we should do it. Like I understand your argument and I don't have like a bad taste in my mouth from that. I I have a yeah. bad taste in my mouth from this whole thing about the local historical society. So if they're asking me to match that flaw, the, the flawed part is the thing that I really want to try to find. I really want to match that. I, I always explain it like this argument smells bad and I want to find another argument in the answer choices. I want to find an argument that smells similarly bad. Yeah. And so that bad smell came from this other group, the local historical society. Mm-hmm. You know, they're jerks, so we got to do the opposite of what they say. And that's the really the gist of it here. I mean, that's how we can comfortably pick C. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think we pretty much agree. The only thing I would just say is that I still feel like that incomplete argument is a flaw because I could just see that as this argument is flawed in that it's presuming without providing justification that economic health is important right to deciding whether or not to accept the proposal so in my mind it's still flawed it's just not nearly as severe of a flaw okay right yeah and and if there were another answer that had both of those premises in it then we can pick that yeah um but here you know it's just not there so yeah pretty comfortably pick c cool well that's good yeah awesome we have a subscription page we've mentioned this a time or two Yep. It's at thinkinglsat.com slash blog slash subscribe. Uh, if you subscribe, you will get a notification as soon as the new episodes are hot off the presses. You can also follow us on Twitter and you can get uh, announcements. We, we tweet the shows immediately as soon as they're released. You tweet uh, me at infox, Ben at strategy prep, or the show at thinkinglsat. Mm-hmm. You can learn more about our services on our websites. I'm uh, foxlsat.com and Ben is strategyprep.com. What else should we pimp for ourselves here? Oh, <laughs> you can email us questions, uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. That comes both to me and Ben. And one or the other of us will add your question to our agenda for a future episode. Mm, what else any last thoughts ben before we wrap it up no that's it uh it's always fun to answer questions so thanks for listening yeah thanks very much for listening and uh we will talk to you very soon Mm -hmm.